Let me pray for us. O gracious God, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of our hearts be acceptable and be pleasing in your sight. And may all that we do, Lord, be done for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. My favorite cartoon is Kelvin and Hobbes. It's actually very logical. And Kelvin and Hobbes has designed this uh, machine called a transmogrifier. And you step into this chamber here, you set the appropriate dials, and then it turns you into whatever thing you want, all right? But this transmogrifier is actually just a cardboard box, you know, and it's amazing what you can do with a cardboard box. But in today, you know, here, what we have in today's story is that somebody gets transformed also. But it's not transformed from a small little boy into a pterodactyl or a dinosaur, but rather he's transformed from being a persecutor of God to being a missionary. And it's not something according to his own design or own will either. So this morning, what I'm going to do is that I'm going to tell the story, then I'm going to try to draw the big idea within the story and then draw some applications for us. And most of the time will be spent on the applications because it's a little bit uh, important here. Now, the story begins here with the story of Saul. And you know, Saul here, the significance of this story is that this story is mentioned several times. Actually, this thing is, yeah, the story here is mentioned several times. And the story here is mentioned three times. So it's not just only told once in Acts 9, but it's told two other times in Acts 22 and 26, which tells us that this story is very significant in the book of Acts. But why is it significant? It's significant because the story of Paul's conversion is so profound and is so amazing that it bears retelling again because it demonstrates the power of God to bring about his plan of salvation. Not only that, the story of Paul's conversion is critical because Paul is a major figure. Paul is a major figure in the story of the message of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles itself. And so the story in Acts 9 forms a pivot in that now the story is being moved from just proclamation to Jews itself in Judea and Samaria, but moving on to Gentiles and the spread of the gospel ultimately to the ends of the earth. Now we heard about Paul before in the story of Acts. And the story of Acts begins, you know, we hear first heard about the story of Saul and that he was giving approval to the killing of Stephen. And then straight after the killing of Stephen, we find Paul beginning to destroy the church, going from house to house, he drags off people, and then he puts women and men into prison. And now coming into Acts 9 itself here, the story picks up where he then begins to secure letters from the high priest letters that will allow him to go to Damascus and then to bring whatever Christians that he finds and to imprison them and to bring them back into Jerusalem. So off he goes into to Damascus itself. And Damascus is a major commercial city. So it's a very significant place there where there's a heavy Jewish population and also strong Christian population. So on the road to Damascus itself, as he nears Damascus here, a light flashes around him he falls to the ground, and then he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, 
Why do you persecute me? Now Saul recognizes that this is a divine presence, a heavenly being. That's why he asks, Who are you, Lord? Lord, who are you? And the voice replies, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. This is amazing. The statement here. Because who has Saul been persecuting? Saul has been persecuting the church. But Jesus says that in fact, Saul has been persecuting him. And so the risen Jesus so identifies with the church, with his people, that the suffering of the church, the suffering of the people, is similar to his own suffering. It's very likely that this statement impacted Paul's theology so much so that it caused him to realize later that there is a deep union between Christ and the church, which then also led him later on to realize that the church is the body of Christ. So the voice of Jesus then instructs Paul to get up and to go into the city and to wait for further instructions. So he goes, and Saul must now begin walking by faith in the risen Lord and to be obedient to the revelation that he received. Now, the, the light that shone around Paul, others saw the light, but they didn't see any heavenly being. They heard sounds, but they did not hear anything intelligible. So that what Paul experienced is not a vision, it's not a dream, it's not something subjective, but that it was something objective. It was a public event that everybody else, well, there were witnesses too. So the people who were around traveling with Paul saw the light, but they did not see the figure. So ultimately then, Paul is blinded. He is then led into Damascus. And for three days, he does not eat and he does not drink. What do you think was going on in Paul's mind during those three days? Three days blind, not eating and not drinking. And I think that what was going on was a complete reversal of who he thought Jesus is and was. So prior to that, prior to his encounter with the risen Jesus, he had thought that Jesus was a blasphemer, a criminal, someone that was condemned by God. Because in Scripture it says that anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. And that passage there in Deuteronomy was interpreted to mean crucifixion. So Paul then understood that and believed that Jesus was cursed by God. And he believed that the Christians were actually enemies of God. Enemies of God because they were misleading Jews from following the way. How could this Jesus be the Messiah? the one who represented the hope of reconciliation, the hope of deliverance for Israel from the enemies of God, of Israel itself. Instead, in his own mind, that the church were the enemies of God because they were misleading the Jews from following the law. They were misleading Jews from following the ways of a criminal, of one who was condemned itself. And so when Paul then, you know, and Saul, he was zealously in trying to persecute the church because he thought, that he, was, he would be like the Old Testament character of Phineas, or be like Matthias of the Maccabean Revolt in trying to bring people back to God, 
to bring people back to the covenant itself. But when the risen Christ appeared, he realized that he was mistaken. Because the resurrection and appearance of Jesus validated the claims that the apostles were making, that the church was making, that this Jesus is truly the Messiah and Lord. And so ultimately here, he met the resurrected and ascended Jesus, and that caused a Copernican understanding in terms of who he believed Jesus to be. Meanwhile, God appeared to Ananias, telling Ananias to go. Now, Ananias is obviously reluctant to go because he knows who Paul is. He knows his reputation. Why would he want to go and heal someone who was struck by God? Maybe Paul's blindness was a judgment from God. Why would he want to go and then heal Paul? He might be fearful. After all, he knows the reputation of Paul himself. Why would he want to send himself straight into the hands of the enemy? Reluctant to go. But yet, when God tells him to go, he is obedient. And so he goes. And then ultimately he goes and welcomes Saul ultimately as a brother within the church. He calls him Brother Saul. He lays hands on him so that he might see again and be filled with the Spirit. Now, just as the point here, Saul did not receive his name Paul during baptism. In all probability, Saul and Paul were the names that were given to Paul. Saul is his Jewish name, and Paul is his Greek-Roman name itself. And so Paul and Saul, depending on where he traveled, he would then use the name accordingly. So when he traveled to the Gentile area, he would call himself Paul rather than Saul. So ultimately, we have this story here. And the story here tells us this critical idea that nobody is beyond God's call. Nobody is beyond God's call to himself. And there are two parts to this call. The call to salvation, which we typically understand as conversion, and the call to be a witness, which we understand as a commission. Under the call to conversion itself, called salvation, we see that nobody is beyond God's call to salvation. And when God calls someone to salvation, he calls them also to be a witness. So if you take a look here at the passage, you can see here the notion of God's call to salvation here. And ultimately, when God calls Paul to be salvation, it's here, he calls them from a position of spiritual blindness to spiritual sight. So in the passage, there are lots of words that indicate seeing light. So you have light, eyes, seeing nothing, blind, vision, seeing, and sight. And then it goes on to here, appearing, seeing again, feel, and seeing again. Notice the notion, the word seeing again, is aligned with being filled with the Spirit, or it is being aligned with baptized. So that the physical sight that Paul doesn't have, the physical blindness that he doesn't have, and the restoration of this spirit of physical sight, it's a metaphor for also for his spiritual blindness. He was once spiritually blind, but now he understands and sees who Jesus is. But at the same time, those who are called to salvation are also called to be a witness. So you see here in verse 6 here, Jesus tells Saul that you will be told what you must do. Do not so much what in order to be saved, but also what you must do once you have been saved. 
And then in the message to Ananias, Jesus says, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for me. Now, Paul's call to be an apostle is clearly a unique call from God. After all, it says that he was a chosen instrument. But nonetheless, when God calls us to himself, he also calls us to be a witness. And this is seen very clearly in 1 Peter. When 1 Peter writing to the churches that were scattered in Asia Minor, he says that you are a chosen people the church, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So God calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light so that we might declare his praises. And so the call to salvation is always accompanied by the call to be his witness. Now, this passage here tells us nobody is beyond God's call. And if, since nobody is beyond God's call, then the passage implicitly tells us that we are to boldly proclaim the risen Lord. We are to boldly witness to the risen Lord. Now, in the remaining of the time, let me just draw some applications for us. The challenge ultimately is, how can we boldly witness to the risen Lord? And what I'll do here is that from the story of Acts 9, I will trace out six elements that are critical or that are fundamental to the whole conversion process. Six elements that are fundamental to the conversion process here. And basically see how it functions as a challenge to us. Now, these six points, they're not original to me, but they are taken, and I've modified them from a commentary that was written by a colleague of mine. But these six points here, even though Paul's conversion is somewhat unique, not typical, but nonetheless, there are six points here that we can learn. Firstly here is that conversion is ultimately the result of God's initiative. Now, Paul was not seeking Jesus He was not seeking the disciples of Jesus so that he could know more about Jesus. Rather, he was seeking the disciples of Jesus so that he might imprison them, so that he might kill them. But nonetheless, Christ reached out of heaven and grabbed him by the throat so that his conversion is totally unexpected. If you had asked any of Paul's friends whether Paul would ever become a follower of Jesus, they would probably have laughed at you. So the probability of Paul becoming a follower of Jesus was abysmally low. But it tells us that nonetheless, salvation is ultimately the result of God's initiative. And that salvation is by grace alone. And that salvation is solely an act of God's mercy. The challenge for us then is that we should never give up hope. Because God's hand is not so short to save those who are resistant to the gospel. The risen Jesus is able to call the hardest of hearts to himself. He's the God of reversal, the God of redemption, the God of revelation. And so let us not give up hope 
praying for those, praying for those whom we have a heart, praying for our family members, praying for our children, praying for spouses, praying even for parents that they may come to know the risen Lord itself. But at the same time here, knowing that salvation is solely the result of God's initiative, it is somewhat also freeing. It is also a comfort to us. Because knowing that salvation is the conversion, is the result of God's initiative, it gives us comfort, for we know that our own efforts in sharing the gospel is never perfect. We know that we could never have the best apologetics ever. But ultimately, if we are faithful in sharing the gospel, we can rest in God's sovereign power to bring those whom he has called to himself. So it is ultimately Jesus and the Holy Spirit who convicts people of the truth of the gospel. So the first thing is that conversion is the result of God's initiative. The second element here is that conversion demands an encounter with Jesus. Now, the risen Lord appeared to Paul, but it's not just the appearance of the risen Lord. Rather, the appearance of the risen Lord forced Paul to come into grips with the claims of who he is. It comes, there must be an encounter with the claims of who Jesus is, so that ultimately there must be an encounter with the claims of Jesus that he is the Lord and Messiah. The challenge for us then is that in our evangelism and in our witnessing, we must present the gospel clearly. In our presentation of the gospel, we must let people know the claims of Jesus so that they come into encounter with the claims of who Jesus is. So that's the second element here, is that conversion demands an encounter with Jesus. The third thing is that conversion requires turning away from sin and turning towards Christ and faith. In the parallel passage in Acts 22, where the story of Paul's conversion is recounted again, Ananias tells Paul, get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. And that Paul here needs to repent of the sin of rebellion against God, against God's anointed, against Jesus. And he needs to turn towards Jesus in faith and calling upon the name of Jesus. So that conversion requires genuine repentance and saving faith. But what is genuine repentance? Genuine repentance is not just feeling sorry that you've done sin, that you've done wrong. It's not just feeling sorry alone. It's not just understanding that you have done wrong and that you have done sin. It's not just the feeling, it's not just the understanding, but there is also a personal decision to turn away from sin and rebellion against God. There is a volitional, there is something of the will that's required. So that's what genuine repentance is. But at the same time, it requires saving faith. And saving faith is just not knowing that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Neither is it just agreeing that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Knowledge is important, understanding is important, but nonetheless, there must also be a personal decision 
to depend on Jesus as the only way of salvation and a personal decision to honor Jesus as the King and the Lord of our lives. So conversion here requires both genuine repentance from sin and true saving faith and turning towards God. So this is the third element. The fourth element here is that conversion changes one's status from being an enemy of God to a witness, to a servant of God. Now, Paul was formerly a persecutor of the church. And I think that most Christians today do not, formerly do not consider themselves a persecutor of the church. But here, Scripture tells us that all of us were formerly enemies of God. All of us were formerly enemies of God. So in Romans, it tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through his son. So that ultimately, we, all of us, were enemies of God. And so conversion changes one's status from being an enemy to a witness to a servant of God. When God called Paul to salvation, he also called him to be a witness. So while generally God does not call us to be an apostle, nonetheless, he does call us all to be a witness for him, as we saw earlier in First Peter. So here the fourth element is that conversion changes one's status from being an enemy to be a witness for God. Now the fifth element here is that conversion involves the personal participation of believers. God appeared to Saul, Paul, in a vision. Yet Ananias was still needed. Ananias was still needed to pray for Paul, to lay his hands on Paul, and to baptize Paul. Now when Ananias was reluctant to go, God could continue to have appeared to Paul. But yet God still uses people to bring his message across. And so here, ultimately, God does appear to non-believers in dreams and visions. He does that to even today, especially to Muslims. But the thing here is that the primary means whereby people encounter Jesus is through the Word of God. And therefore, God still uses believers to challenge unbelievers and to share the good news of Jesus. So the challenge for all of us then is that we are to be involved in the work of evangelism. We can't just leave it to the work of the professionals, the pastors, those who have been trained to be apologists. You think, look, who was Ananias? Was he someone important? So far in the story of Acts, he's a nobody, never been mentioned before. But God used a nobody to lead someone who was going to be one of the most influential Christians in the church. And so God can simply use us. We should not despise the talents and the skills that God has given us. But God tells us to be faithful and to witness and to proclaim His majesty in whatever context that we find ourselves in. And that even though we think that our gifts are insignificant, God could still use us in the salvation, in the discipleship, 
even of the next Billy Graham itself. And so here the conversion involves the personal participation of believers. And lastly here is that conversion involves integration into the community of believers. Notice that when Paul was baptized and when Paul was, was approached by Ananias, Ananias called him Brother Saul. And then Saul here then spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And that the whole process of conversion is not complete until the person is integrated into the community of believers. The challenge for us, can the church welcome a former enemy into its community? If Paul was here today, would our church welcome him, knowing that he was complicit in the murder of Christians? Ultimately, Ananias demonstrated a posture of forgiveness, a posture of friendship itself, and was the church able to do the same thing today? How would a church respond to a death row inmate who became a Christian? How would the church respond to paroled prison inmates who became believers imprisoned? Would our church be willing to accept them? Would our church be willing to embrace them into our community itself? And I pray that we would be able to do so. Now, the story here ultimately tells us that since God is able to call the hardest of hearts, since nobody is beyond God's call, let us boldly witness to the risen Lord. A modern-day example of this marvelous story of Paul's conversion is basically seen in the life of Nabil Qureshi. His story is seen in the biography uh, of his book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, who was a New York Times bestseller. And Nabil here was raised as an Indian, as an Ahmadi Muslim itself. He studied Islamic apologetics and engaged in debates with Christians. But while he was debating with another Christian itself, he himself became convinced of the reliability of the New Testament. And God appeared to him miraculously in dreams too and convinced him of the reality of Jesus and the truth of who Jesus is. And so after his conversion, he became a strong apologist for the Christian faith with Ravi Zacharias Ministries until his death last year. A story again reminding us that nobody is beyond God's call. And if nobody is beyond God's call, then let us boldly witness to the risen Lord. Let me pray for us. Oh, gracious God, I thank you that your hand is not so short to save us. And that even though we might be rebellious, we might be hardened, but your spirit is able to shake us from our stupor, to shake us and to wake us up and to give us life. So I pray, Lord, that we would be reminded that your hand is not too short to save and give us the courage and the boldness to witness to the power of the risen Lord. Amen.
to this benediction and reading again from First Peter 2.8. Do remember that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So go forth declaring the praises of God. Amen.